Welcome to Season 3 of UDIA's Development Drum Podcast, where we speak to members and ask them to share some of their property industry insights and at the same time get to know our industry colleagues a little better. My guest today is Brooke Monaghan. Brooke brings a wealth of knowledge as founder and managing director of Mosaic Property Group, one of Queensland's most awarded and respected property developers. Mosaic's unique, fully integrated business model sees it control every aspect of the development and delivery process, from research, site acquisition, design, marketing, sales and construction, to property and asset management and caretaking long after completion. Numbering over 60 completed developments since 2014, Mosaic has a further $1.5 billion of residential and mixed-use projects set to be delivered across southeast Queensland within the next five years. And with over 180 team members and 2,000 consultants and subcontractors, Mosaic is a significant employer and contributor to Queensland's economy. Brooke is also the director and co-founder of the Mosaic Foundation, which supports local grassroots organisations in making a genuine difference to society's most vulnerable, including the homeless, sick and disadvantaged children. Thanks for joining us on The Development Drum, Brooke. Great to be here, Kirsty. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Now, Brooke, you did not start your career in property. You started your career in agribusiness. How did you find your way to property? Yeah, it's a good question, Kirsty. I guess the short answer is there's probably a fairly similar parallel, I guess, between property and agribusiness. One fundamentally, when you strip everything back, is that agriculture is about creating food from land and property is obviously about building properties, whether that's townhouses, apartments, it's about shelter at its fundamental level. So I think, yeah, I came from a blue collar family. So grew up with a father who was in the meat game. My mother was a school teacher. And so I think fundamentally dealing with blue collar trade base as well, large part of our subcontractors. So, you know, they work on construction sites on a daily basis. So, and then there's a tangible aspect. I grew up working with my hands. I spent most of my early and then later teenage years and early 20s working on properties and cattle stations and worked a lot with my hands. I think property in itself, without having a trade-based skill, worked a lot as a a labour on construction sites during those (laughs) same periods of time. So, yeah, strong relationship given family history to blue collar and I think the practical aspects of property construction aren't too dissimilar to what my experience was in in agriculture and agribusiness and I think that was the natural path for me when I eventually got into property. Still a soft spot for agriculture? Oh, always, yeah. yeah. I've got a lot of mates in the rural industry across Australia, particularly in Queensland, and and I love the rural industry. I love that about Australia, and food's a really important part of our future, as is shelter. But, yeah, it was a, it's a difficult business and industry to be able to, to make a mark in yeah. long term if you don't come from a family that's well-established on the land. So I think the biggest decision I had to make at a young age, even though I was really passionate about agriculture, was yeah. that, you know, my family was working class. We didn't come from a long line of partialists mm. who had large land holdings that I could eventually move back or get involved in. Yes. So I had to create my own path to a certain degree. And given yeah. that, for me, property and construction was probably an easier industry than agriculture at the time. I don't know if I look, I thought that at the time. I'm, sort of <laughs> look back now, I'm not sure whether the grass is ever green or it's ever any ever any easier. But, oh, yeah, I wouldn't change the path, really yeah. still involved in agriculture to a certain degree. And, yes. And got a lot of mates. So, yeah, no, really, really blessed to have had a strong association with both ag and property over the last sort of 25 years. Yeah, it's interesting you say there are quite a few parallels, aren't they, between ag and property? Yeah, definitely. And I think the type of people that I've associated with in that, during that time frame in terms of both men and women that I've worked with, people mm. at Mosaic and people that I still know in the rural industry, yeah, there's definitely a lot of 
similarities in terms of grassroots, pretty grounded people. Yeah. Um, across those industries and I've always related well to that. Yeah, fantastic. Now, you mentioned that construction is certainly not an easy game and it certainly has been a challenging couple of years for the construction sectors. We've dealt with you know, a huge surge in demand and really competition for property. Has Mosaic's vertical integration really helped the company navigate those supply and cost pressures that we've all experienced? Yeah, for sure, Kirsty. I think to just to go back a step before I respond specifically to the construction cost mm. um, issues, which are obviously front and centre for a lot of people at the moment. You know, I've always said it's a, a really difficult business, property and construction, to be good at over a long period of time yeah. through multiple cycles. Yeah. I think you've got to have a skill set across multiple disciplines. In other words, you've got to be good at a lot of different things, whether that's understanding, you know, people and to be able to negotiate, to understand communities, you know, you've got to understand planning, you've got to understand government stakeholders, you've got to understand design, you, mm. you've got to fundamentally understand how you build things. Yeah. And then on top of that, you've got to be good at sales and marketing and finance mm. and legal. And so it goes on and on. So I think, you know, I've always taken a view that to build competency across our business in all of those different aspects of property development, which are critical to the success of us as a group, has always been about managing risk. Yes. Um, and if I look back, yeah, in particular the last few years, right? Like I think a lot of people got caught out by how quickly we went from mm -hmm. The world is potentially ending. If you sort of followed yes. that commoditized thinking or the script at the time, everyone yeah. thought in that April, May, June period, we weren't subscribers at that point, and particularly in terms of our own industry. But it went really quickly from that to then everyone got long property within six months, right? And yeah. so, yeah, this immense, and there was a lot of factors at play there, yes. I think, which we're all aware of, and particularly the amount of money that was pumped into the system. So, you know, what happened is there was a lot of demand brought forward. Mm -hmm. Everyone then gets on the speculation train in terms of acquiring property. I guess what the industry didn't really anticipate at the time was then the other side of that coin or the flow on consequences were lack of labour and the rapidly yeah. escalating challenges around material and supplies, which saw construction costs grow the most they've grown in probably four or five decades. Yeah. And so huge pressure on margins. Yeah. And so we, I get asked this all the time, you know, we've got a large construction business. It's one aspect of our business. It's a really important aspect of our business. We weren't immune to what has turned up in the marketplace over the last two to three years. I don't think you could say that if you started a construction business in the last two or three years, you would have got through this period okay. No. I don't think that's the case at all. I think yeah. there's a decade or so of competency that's built into that part of our business. So we're not immune, but it's absolutely enabled us to better navigate mm. because I think we're in a business where we're trying to control as many things as we possibly can. And most of that is about managing risk, but yeah. it doesn't matter how well prepared or how good you are at that, the reality is there's also lots of things outside of our mm -hmm. control. So my view has always been is that we need to be masters of the things that we can control and we need to be also masters at managing risk for the things that we can't yet yeah. foresee. Yeah. And I think the last two and a half years is a really great example of that. So, yeah, at the end of the day, what we've been able to navigate is, is not no impact, but we've been able to reduce the impact of not just construction cost escalation, but all of the other things that have mm. occurred in the last few years and are occurring now, right? So even I think the biggest problems of you know 2023 will be around securing funding. Sales yeah. will definitely soften off the plan. Yeah. Construction cost escalations is still a massive issue, or just the sheer lack of available builders to complete that mm. work. Even if you could get a project to work, I think the challenges this year are even greater than last year. Certainly greater than the year before, and we're pretty well placed to deal with the challenges. But it doesn't mean it's any easier for us. I do want to ask you towards the end around your outlook for the future and vision for the next decade. But firstly, touching on particularly skills and trade shortage and construction costs, it's it's interesting looking at the build up already to twenty thirty two, 
and contemplating the scale of infrastructure investment that the region is likely to have. And that, of course, has some positive aspects to it in terms of placing Southeast Queensland on the global map more so. But of course, it brings with it some challenges, I imagine, around construction costs and skills and trade shortage. Is that something that you're currently grappling with and thinking about? Yeah, look, it's a discussion point that's very relevant in our business on a daily basis. I, you know, it's difficult to forecast the future. I think, mm. and most forecasting is fraught yeah. um, with danger because no one really knows what's going to go on. But you know, we, from our perspective, you know, trying to understand where the market's heading is a really important part of yeah. how we make decisions. Obviously, as it is for most people with a, with a, a reasonably substantial business. So when we look forward, it is hard to see how construction costs abate yes. um, to any meaningful level. So typically what would happen when you see a run-up in construction prices like we've seen, although it, it is extraordinary mm. on a historical basis what we've experienced in the last two years, yeah. they are historically inelastic, which means that construction prices typically don't go back to where they were. But what you do get is you get a slowing of inflationary pressure with construction costs. So in other words, construction prices don't go back yep. to where they were, but they stop going up at the same rate. Yep. Um, and well, my view is that that's happening at the moment. Mm. I think the biggest challenge moving forward, though, is that what we're now moving into, rather than a period of consolidation, I think you know the resi sector is substantially hamstrung by the lack of suitable builders that can complete, yes. particularly mid to large scale yes. built form projects. There's yeah. just and those builders that are left that aren't still reeling from significant margin pressure mm. of the last couple of years. We talk about the profitless boom. I think most builders would be happy to have got through this period and made no profit. No <laughs> but I think the reality is that a lot of them are probably in the red or underwater. So yeah. so even those that are left that have capacity, brand recognition with the banks have balance sheet, they are very, very reluctant to continue to take on larger scale resi work yeah. because it's been really, really challenging and, and will continue to be so. And so that means that, you know, even for somebody who could find an external builder willing to take on a large resi project, the reality is that the risk pricing yeah. and yeah. the amount of prelims that needs to go into those prices now means that it's unfeasible. Yes. And that's why we're seeing so many projects not go ahead right. Yes. So so you'd think typically when you've got this all of these pressures that start to then normalize the market and you're seeing a lot of projects either indefinitely deferred or just not going ahead at all or being recycled, that that eventually creates a little bit of softness or freeing up of the labour market. Yes. And particularly with borders now open and we're starting to see some skilled and unskilled migration workers coming back into the country, typically you see a moderation of construction prices. My only concern with that is that whilst that's definitely playing out and will throughout this year is that what will quickly take that void is yes. the enormous amount of yes. infrastructure yeah. plan work that you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's why the gap between you know, EBA, non-EBA prices are really is non-existent at this mm. point in time because it is about not just the amount of people there is to complete this work or not, it is the fact that those people can get paid more typically on larger yep. projects yep. where government pricing is obviously a lot more attractive than it would be in the private or yes. the non-EBA sector. So, yeah. yeah, I do think for the next seven years, the pressures that we're dealing with around construction are, are going to continue to be a lingering problem. And so people are going to have to be a lot smarter about how we approach design, a lot smarter around how we engage in terms of meaningful relationships because, yes. you know, the only way you're going to get people to turn up and do the work is if they trust that you're solvent, they trust that you're going to pay on time and probably trust that there's some sort of continuity of work in the future. Yes. Yes. Otherwise, they're going to look elsewhere. Yeah. Well, I continue to offer my services as a brickie, a bricklayer or a chippy or no one's taking me up on it, but 
I am available. Well, after a short induction period tomorrow morning at sort of nine o'clock, we can have you on a broom for about 55 bucks an hour on I, any one of our construction sites. Just, so we look forward to seeing just you Just need a person. little bit of magnesium before <laughs> I rock up, I reckon. I'm not sure my old netball body would be able to cope. We'd give it a bell. Now, Mosaic has always had a really strong commitment to community engagement and, and leaving a legacy, and it's something that we've seen through UDIA. Do you think always recognised and appreciated by the communities that you work in? Yeah, look, it's a good question, and I'm not sure it's that relevant in terms of the intentions of what we do to begin with, other than it would be better for everybody, and then I'm talking about government, industry, mm. um, community, if that overall engagement and understanding of the need to deliver yes. more housing choice and what comes with that in terms of challenges, risk, but then what also comes with that in terms of understanding the concerns that the existing communities have around development or over-densification and the amenity or lack thereof or upgrades to infrastructure, transport, all those things, right? So all of those things are real. So it would be nice that contributions to community engagement might make some meaningful inroads to getting everybody to the table with a better understanding of what we all need to do. But look, I've always said, you don't want to try and reinvent the wheel Mm. or get too far ahead of yourself. Like We approach community engagement for the sole purpose of it's actually just the right thing to do yeah. and it makes good business sense. Yeah. Um, I think if you're approaching community engagement because you think that it's a box you need to tick or it's something that will make you more attractive as yeah. a brand because it looks like you're doing the right thing, then I think you run into challenges because the community is probably in some respects naturally anxious towards any sort of development, even if it's good development. Or change. Or stop. change. Yeah. Totally. Like there's some people would like to see their suburbs stay the way that yes. they were 50 years ago, let alone lack of further progress from this point forward. So yeah. you're not going to get everybody on that journey. Mm-hmm. I think in the past at times the development industry has probably contributed yeah. to that level of anxiety and yeah. that you know, we haven't maybe delivered on our promises all of the time yeah. or haven't respected the significant impact and disruption that construction has on communities. And so we really get that. When mm-hmm. we're going to have conversations with people, we just want to be genuine about our yes. approach. It doesn't mean that everyone becomes a friend or an advocate of development or of Mosaic Property Group. It doesn't. And some people, no matter the lengths we go to are just, they are against all form of progress yeah. and progress, including construction development. And so we also get that's okay. Mm. People have got a choice around that. We need to listen to people and show genuine empathy around their concerns, but also be okay about communicating why it is that we do what we do, yeah. you know, what our track record is around being consistent with delivering on the promises that we make and being respectful of what we've done in the communities. But that also means acknowledging some things that we could have done better in the past mm. that we're looking to improve in the future. So our whole thing around community engagement is that you've got to take a longer-term approach. So we don't think that you get genuine benefit from community engagement until you continue to go back and develop yeah. in particular areas. Yeah. So we find that four or five years down the track, third, fourth project in yes. a particular suburb, Yes. and if you continue to be genuine in approaching the community and you deliver on the promises that you make, and the promises yeah. you make is not just in terms of the projects you deliver and the quality of the projects you deliver, but it's how did you treat the community while you're delivering yeah. those projects in yeah. terms of the impact that had. And if you follow through on all of those promises that you made and you generally understand the issues and challenges and try to respond to as many as those that you possibly can yeah. and the community gets that you're genuine about it, then what we're finding is when we go back four or five years' time on those third and fourth projects, there's far greater yeah. acceptance. Yes. So then when we're starting the conversation in those communities, the starting point is a lot further along the road than where we were when we completed our or approached our first project yes. in that suburb. You've and got a track record. Totally. Yep. And then what, what we're finding is that the buyers 
in those particular areas. So the people who buy off us in a particular suburbs come out of the community, the same community that you're trying to have a conversation with. Yes. So, yes. We, you know, we're finding people that might have been anxious or nervous about development five years ago are actually future buyers in subsequent projects in those same regions. And yeah. that's when we know that we've been genuine about our approach. Yeah. So, genuine's the key word, isn't it? Oh, it's just so important, and I think the community is alive to those approaches that aren't genuine or and authentic and designed to work with the community. If the community thinks you're going in there to offer up something just because you're trying to get something else in return, then you know, they're naturally going to be suspicious, yeah. right? So if you're just going in and say, look, guys, we're not going to be able to fulfill mm. everything that you would like in your wish list of either pro or anti-development. Yes. We're not asking you for a letter of support. We're not asking you to be champions of the Mosaic brand. What we want to do is have a conversation around what we've done in the past, yep. uh, what we're wanting to do here and why, who are the type of people that are going to live in our projects, so who are the people within the community, and what have we found from our previous projects and research what is it that people actually want? Yes. And how are we going to deliver that? Yeah. How are we going to deliver that in a way that's respectful in terms of the community during the construction process? What are we going to do post-completion? Like talk about the fact that we don't walk away from our projects once we're complete. Yeah. And I think if that's your conversation and you follow up on everything that you say you're going to do and you engage with the community throughout the actual delivery process, then the majority of people will respect and relate well to that, even if they're not pro-development. Pro-development, yeah. Now, I mentioned before in your intro, 185 team members, which you all dearly love equally. <laughs> We've all got a favourite child. That's right. That's Kirsten. right. Only if you're, it, you know what makes that easier when you're an only child, you are always the answer. <laughs> Just a hot tip. Talk us through your approach to managing and, and leading a team of that size. Well, it's far from perfect, Kirsty. I'll tell you <laughs> that. And depending on who you ask within my team, you know, it, certainly there's. Uh, Degrees of imperfection, but yeah, look, I don't. I think the that's first human, that's natural. <laughs> 100%, I think the starting point obviously there's a lot more qualified and successful people around leadership than me. I just, my perspective is, is you need to keep it simple. Like we're all flawed as human beings. We've got our strengths, we've got our weaknesses. I think the ability to be vulnerable around yes. that as a leader. Yes. So understanding, I think the biggest thing for me is having greater awarenesses of the weaknesses in terms of how I've approached business and people over time and been better at addressing those, yeah. I think has been the most important thing and then fostering those levels of vulnerability inside that team. Yes. Like it's not the easiest place no. to work. Mosaic, you know, I have really high expectations of myself first and everyone else second and that flows through the rest of the business and we attract people that are high achievers. So, you know, when I say it's not for everyone, if you're looking for a cushy job to hide, Mosaic's definitely not, not the it. place yeah. for you and, you know, that, high-intensity environment can create friction at times. So that needs to be really balanced. And we talk a lot about this as a leadership team with the genuine empathy and understanding for your people. Like mm. I'd, My starting point is is that work takes up a lot of people's lives in terms of pure time commitment over their life. You know, say someone, the average person works till they're 65 or 70 years of age. It's a significant portion mm -hmm. of their life. And once you recognise that people can choose to work anywhere, yes but they're choosing to work for you, then my question is to our leadership team constantly is, so why do we continue to be a place that people will choose to work at rather than somewhere else? Mm. And that's just having some basic gratitude of the fact that people choose you and having some humility around the fact that they can go anywhere else whenever yes. they want. Yeah. So we like to think we're a good place to work, but there's plenty of other good places to work as well, right? I so, hear nothing but good stories. Do you? I do. Jesus, you must be talking to the right people. <laughs> but yeah, so look, just to wrap that up, I think you need to balance the high expectation stuff with yeah. people around understanding that each individual is different and people, there's different things that are important. Like for us, 
185 full-time staff, like what we, what we understand over a long period of time just in relating to people and you know, getting some things right and some things not in terms of how we dealt with staff is that there's different things that are important to different staff members yes. and particularly depending on where they're at in their lives. So some people it's learning, it's opportunity, it's leadership, it's exposure to industry, it's exposure to other aspects of the business. Some people it's reward and that could be yes. monetary or otherwise. So yeah. it's just understanding that we have really high expectations and we set those levels of accountability really strictly in our business. But what we try and balance that out with is a need to understand that every human being in our business is different, different and need to be yeah. treated as such. So. Yeah. And I guess lastly, the big one is making sure that we lead from the front. So my view is that as a leader of the business, I'm not trying to find an easier path or abdicate. Like I might pride myself on being the hardest worker inside my business and and not just for the sake of hard work, but hands on the wheel. Most of what I do is solving problems. It's not the shiny stuff, the the vast bulk of the time. No, it's it's not. It's not the turning of the sod. That's the 0.5% of the job, if that, isn't it? I've done a couple of those with shiny shovels, but that's a a small part. There's a good way to do that and not so good way. I've seen (laughs) seen some bad examples over the years. It's all about the shovel type, isn't it? (laughs) It is, mate. It is. Construction is a fast-paced game, isn't it, really? And, and ultimately, you are trying to deliver the best quality product for the customer. It must be difficult, though, particularly given the pipeline that Mosaic has, along with other people. How do you celebrate the successes that you have as a team without wanting to move on to the next challenge really quickly? I know that's something that a number of organisations struggle with. How do you stop, say, look, We've done an excellent job here without moving on to the next challenge, which is just so easy in that fast-paced environment. Yeah, definitely. And I think for me, it's about having other people in our business, you know, in the leadership team and otherwise, that are better at recognising this than I've been in the past. When I was two years old at Kindy, I was asking the Kindy teacher what we're doing tomorrow afternoon and we hadn't even started that day, right? So I've been pretty poor <laughs> in my personal life and business life, probably um, well and truly onto the next thing, even well before yeah, we achieve certain milestone. I think, like you said, there's a lot of people that like that, Kirsty. But yeah, recognising that we're a business that has probably only sort of adapted to understanding that it's important to recognise wins more so for the team than it is for individuals. Like we, even for UDA awards, like we really only participated mm-hmm. those in the last five, six years. Like, mm-hmm. You know, prior to that, I was probably against it to a certain degree because for me, I've always been about what's really important is that we do what we say we're going to do and it's based on actions, not based on trying to position your brand around whether you win awards or not. So, But also understanding that for our staff, it's an important recognition Mm. for the work that they've done. But I think far more importantly and more broadly than that, it is actually the little wins and celebrations rather than the big ones that are more important. And we try and foster that through individual leaders of all of the different divisions within our business. So, And so that might be as simple as they have a beer together on a Friday afternoon yeah. or they go and do some sort of team building event once every six or eight weeks or to celebrate a key milestone mm. relative to their different part of their business. Yes. And we're finding it is those leaders setting that tone that is creating a culture whereby they are celebrating the wins a lot better than it would have been if it was a top-down yes. approach from the leadership. So yeah. if it was left to me, it would be a pretty miserable place, but <laughs> left to the other great leaders in our business, they are pretty good at recognising the small wins. And I do think it is... That's Small wins recognised more yep. consistently is actually more important than the big wins. Yeah, and often the big ones are such a slog. Totally. That by the time you get to the big win, you just want a nap, really, yeah. apart from anything else. <laughs> and there might, there might have been a hundred hundred yeah. little wins to get to that one exactly. big thing too, right? So, exactly. I think it's yeah, the recognition of that on the way through that's the most important thing. Yeah, fantastic. Now, thinking ahead to the next decade, what's your vision for the future of Mosaic? Look, 
I've always been really big on not getting too far ahead of ourselves. I think, you know, we recognise that we've come a long way in the last decade, but we've also got a long way to go in terms of potential for improvement. Our view, if you ask me in 10 years from now, where are we? It is doing what we're doing now, but a lot better than what we've done at this point in time. You know, I'm really proud of the work that we did 10 mm. years ago, but if I look at the projects we're delivering now, they've come a long way during that time course, frame, which yeah. you naturally expect. So, mm. And I would like to think that that will be the case another 10 years from now, looking back to where we are having this conversation. Yeah. So, you know, it, there's an opportunity. We've spoken about other potential markets where we think our brand would have relevance, but we're not in a rush to get there. Yeah. We're super excited about the opportunity here in Southeast Queensland yes. in the next 10 years. And yeah. Our brand's becoming reasonably well-established in this market. So we think there's a lot of opportunity to get better in terms of, you know, market trends, in terms of where people are going, in terms Mm. of different demographics and what they want in terms of where they want to live and what they want from what they want to live and and what they can afford to pay for relative to what it is that they want out of their place of abode. So we recognise there's some really significant trends gathering pace. Technology's part of that, but only a small part. And I think... The other huge opportunity that we're very heavily invested in at the moment is in terms of how we deliver that. So as an industry, I think particularly Mm. construction Mm. um, has been sort of left behind a little bit in terms of its ability to innovate. And so the understanding the impact of what we do, sustainability, durability of what it is that we do in terms of how we build our buildings and how they cope over a long period of time and then construction smart. So how it is that we construct buildings that are better to live in, that Mm. last longer, that have a reduced footprint yes um i think is a really big part of our future so yeah. look in summary we see lots of opportunity in southeast queensland and we see lots of opportunity to do what we're doing now but to do it a lot better so that's probably 10 years from now that's where we see mosaic property group and with me on a broom starting would you say tomorrow morning about 10 30 a.m just after a little lunch that future just looks a lot more rosier yeah, doesn't I'm pretty, it i'm pretty sure 10 years from now KCB with someone of your ambition, work ethic, capability will probably be able to evolve all the way up to a a junior property manager. I hope so. I hope so. I see a bright future ahead. Yeah, I think, look, I've got the skills. Just give me a chance. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Brooke, it has been absolutely wonderful to speak with you today. And thank you so much for all that Mosaic do in coordination with UDIA. Certainly you and the team are always there and willing to share your experiences and challenges, which is absolutely critical to an industry organisation. So thank you for your time today. And we look forward to watching Mosaic develop and grow over the next 10 years. Yeah, thanks, Casey. Be really proud to be involved with UDIA and thanks for having me here today. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Thank you for listening to the UDIA Queensland's Development Drum podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us. Remember to rate and review this show on your favourite podcast app. While you're there, please make sure you click subscribe so you don't miss an episode.